we've worked really, really hard to strengthen our relationships and to give back to each other. I think everyone at Beauty Counter in general knows that we all care about each other and also knows that we have room for improvement in terms of creating all of those you know, processes and the infrastructure that is in an early stage company that's not always there to make it a little bit easier to work their day-to-day jobs. Greg Renfrew launched Beauty Counter without any experience in the beauty industry, but with a fierce desire to make clean beauty as accessible as possible. Fast forward to today, and with over 60,000 independent consultants, Beauty Counter is taking the world of beauty by storm, and Greg is here to share the story of how it all started. Coming up, you'll hear about the movie that inspired Greg to start Beauty Counter how Greg started Beauty Counter without any experience in the beauty industry, and how she underestimated the costs for formulating products. How Beauty Counter coined the term clean beauty and why this is so important to Greg's mission. Why it's more important to surround yourself with people who are passionate about your mission rather than experts. Her evolution as a leader over the years and how the pandemic has impacted her company culture and the ways in which it has allowed her to really lean into her people. Exciting recent launches, including their new deodorant and why they're leaning into live stream shopping, how you can get involved with Beauty Counter and discover their products. And finally, Greg shares stories about her mentors that have guided her over the years and why it is such an incredible asset to be a woman in business. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters. No limits. And plenty of surprises. Greg, we are so excited to sit down with you and hear more about your entrepreneurista journey. I personally am such a huge fan of Beauty Counter, so it is such an honor to speak with you. I got into the whole natural beauty trend several years ago when I was going through a complicated time with infertility and realizing how important it was to learn what I was putting on in my body. So the fact that you started this years ago to create this incredible business and movement is just so wonderful. And I'm just honored to be here and chat with you today. Well, thank you so much for saying that. And it's stories like yours that are the reason that I started the business in the very first place. So thank you for having me. And I have to tell you, I sit here with my beauty counter lip balm (laughs) and I'm always keeping my lips hydrated and it tastes delicious and it's natural. So, so thank you. So I want to hear how did this idea for beauty counter come to be? Because you are a serial entrepreneurista, and this was not your first venture. It was not my first venture, but it's probably the most important work that I've done. It's definitively the most important thing that I've ever done. You know, it really started for me a, a very long time ago in 2006 when I watched the film An Inconvenient Truth, and I became really impassioned with the environmental health movement. Watching that film for me was a complete and utter wake up call. It was the first time that I became aware of the fact that we were doing things that were truly detrimental to the earth. And from that day forward, I began to make changes in my life. And subsequent to that, and also starting with around that time, I was watching so many of my friends be diagnosed in their 30s with different types of cancer, both men and women and all different types. 
I had so many of my close friends struggling with fertility issues. My best friend ultimately couldn't carry a you know, baby to term. I was watching this happen over and over again. I was watching other friends give birth to kids with significant health issues. And I started to wonder what's going wrong with the earth and what's going wrong with human health. And did some research and talked to a number of people and learned that there were many tens of thousands of chemicals that had been introduced into commerce and most of them had never been tested for safety and human health. And I began to connect the dots between our exposure and the earth's exposure to toxic chemicals and the impact it was having on our health and our earth. And so with that in mind and knowing what I then knew, I started to make a number of significant changes in my life. You were saying this earlier, you did the same thing. Once you know and have the information, armed with information, you'll make better choices. So I started to get rid of all my nonstick pans, which if anyone's listening and they haven't done that already, I know it's a pain to scrub the pans, but I promise you, you don't want that Teflon in your home. You know, just get basic stainless steel. But I would get rid of that. I got rid of my plastic containers and switched to glass. I changed the way in which I cleaned my home. I took my shoes off at the door. But when it came to skincare and color cosmetic products, I just couldn't find any products that met my needs. I knew that there were a million brands out there that I had you know, used throughout my life that were high performance and on trend and exciting, whether those were department store brands, whether those were drugstore brands or the luxury brands, it didn't matter. They were all these you know, sort of sexy, wonderful products, but they were filled with all these chemicals that I had learned were of concern. And then there was on the other end, like this very eco small niche type of business, but the products didn't work that well. They didn't look that good. They didn't smell that great. And I thought, wow, why can't we start a new business that really brings to light, you know, this issue that we face brings great products into the market that are high performing and significantly safer for your health. And how do we build a movement to change, really to change the world, to make it healthier and safer for all. Did you have any experience in the beauty industry? No, not a drop. Once you decided you wanted to pursue this path, what was your next step? You know, I think like any entrepreneur and you all know this, I think that you know, one of the things that makes people successful entrepreneurially is sort of just being unapologetic and shamelessly, you know, relying on friends, picking up the phone, being resourceful and resilient. So I just started calling friends. I had a friend who'd worked in the hair care division of L'Oreal. I had another friend that worked at S.A. Lauder. I just started calling people and saying, okay, what do you know about this? Or what do you know about that? And, you know, one conversation led me to the next. And so I had a series of conversations with people in the environmental health movement. I had a series of conversations with nonprofit organizations that led me to chemists. I had a series of conversations with people in the beauty industry, and I started to begin to put some of the pieces of the puzzle together, but it was a process. How long did it take from the time you had this idea until you launched your first product? So I began to realize there was a huge opportunity in late 2010, and we launched in March of 13. And so for all of 2011 and 2012, we built out product and the systems and everything we needed to go live March 4th of 2013. Did you raise money before you launched or did that come later? Unfortunately, I did raise money. I wish I had, but you know, it is what it is. I think that, you know, for us, when I started Beauty Counter, there was no clean beauty. There was not even the phrase. We coined the phrase clean beauty. We really, and I don't mean that with any arrogance, but we genuinely pioneered and have led this movement. And so I thought naively that I could just take base formulas and make a few little tweaks and adjustments and it would be easy. And so when I started the company, I thought, oh, this is something I can kind of you maybe do on a shoestring, but the reality of the situation, it wasn't. It was millions of dollars to create products from scratch, to convince manufacturers to do business in a completely different way with ingredients that they had never formerly used. And so I raised capital right out of the gate. And I also didn't honestly have enough money to do it anyway. So yes, <laughs> long-winded answer to your question. Yes, I did raise money. 
Why do you wish you didn't raise money looking back? What would you have done differently? Well, that's not a fair statement. I mean, I've had incredible partners and financial sponsors and investors all the way around. I just wish I, you know, owned more of my company today. And I think one of the mistakes that we all make, or many, I shouldn't speak with everyone, but when you're starting something is that you feel oftentimes that you either need people more than you need them, that you can't do it on your own because you don't have the confidence or you don't have the skill set or you didn't come from the beauty industry or whatever. And then I also think that oftentimes you bring in more capital than you need in the beginning. And I think maybe if I'd waited a little bit longer and raised a little bit less early on, I'd probably have more ownership today. But with that said, we've built an extraordinary company and I always feel that if it's in success, everyone wins anyway, but I might've waited a little bit longer. Can you share how you like learned the process when you were raising money? Had you raised money before? Were you learning along the way? And how did you know how much to give up? That's a really good question. I think that, yes, I had raised money before. I had a company called The Wedding List, which I sold to Martha Stewart. And so I'd had a really bad experience with the venture capital firm with whom I partnered and they are no longer in existence, but they, you know, we did everything we said we did. We were absolutely on fire doing incredible work. And then the dot-com market blew up and they forced me to sell prematurely. And yes, by most standards, it would be a success to have sold your company to Martha Stewart, but we never realized our potential. And it was really challenging working for Martha, <laughs> which is a story for another day. I'm not on a podcast over a glass of wine. But I think at the end of the day, I learned a lot of things. And so I always you know, feel now that when you go out to raise capital, a little bit like when you're interviewing for a job, you need to be interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. And right now, at least in this moment in time, there is far more capital than there are great ideas and great executive teams and great companies. And so what I think people do wrong oftentimes is that they're so nervous about raising money and that they're sort of, they're begging for money that they don't realize that they are actually in a more powerful position than they realize. And if you actually own that power, especially as a woman, and you walk in and say, you know, this is what I'm doing and I'm okay if you don't buy into my concept or my vision, you're obviously then not the right person for me. You will get much farther with the capital that you do raise. That is such good advice. Take us back to the early days, that first year of launching. What were those initial mistakes and learning lessons? <laughs> Where do you, do you guys have like six hours? I mean, I made so many, I always say like good days when I don't make the same mistake twice. What were some of the mistakes that I made? Well, first of all, I think that probably the greatest mistake I made early on was bringing a close friend into the business with whom I enjoyed an incredible relationship, who didn't necessarily have the skill set that was most applicable to the business that I was trying to build. And I think that that blew up a friendship that was really valuable to me. And I always say to people, if, and I know there are many examples where it does work, but if you have a friend who's just a personal friend, not a business friend, but you know, with whom you share everything, it's not always prudent to go into business together. It can work and it can also blow up. And so I think one of the mistakes I made was that. I also think that I'm a pretty confident woman, but with that said, I think I doubted myself in the beginning. And so I surrounded myself with a bunch of people who were all experts. And that was because I didn't know anything about beauty and I wasn't a toxicologist and I wasn't an environmental activist and I wasn't this and that. And so I kept thinking I had needed all these experts around me. And actually what you need is people who are committed to your vision, who are really intelligent and hardworking, but expertise is only going to take you so far. And so I wish in retrospect, I just brought on a whole group of great people who were committed to our mission and not gotten caught up in their experience and skill sets, if that makes any sense. 
I think that there are lots of examples. I always look at the example of Marvel. One of the reasons Marvel has been so successful is that they take all different types of directors, not only ones that would be obvious for them, but if someone's been a documentary film director. And I think that I did a little bit too much of that. I, I hired all the obvious players because I didn't feel like I knew exactly what I was doing. What started happening in your business that made you realize, oh, maybe this isn't the right fit? Well, I think we have had, you know, cultural challenges as a result of that, because I think that I was always trying to keep everyone happy. And I think at the end of the day, what I've learned, and I do think I'm a strong CEO and leader, that doesn't mean I don't make millions of mistakes all the time. And I believe so much in servant leadership. So I don't think it's about me at all. But I think what I've learned as I've grown as a leader is that if you are extremely clear and concise in your communication, if you set expectations with people, if, you, if you're if you okay not trying to make everyone happy, but say, look, the train's leaving the station, you're either on this train with me or you're not, I'm okay either way, but you either need to agree or disagree and commit, or you need to move aside. I think I just spent so much time trying to cater to everyone's specific interests and needs that it was a challenging start to the business. How long did it take you to realize all of this and then change direction going forward? I think it's something that's evolved year after year. I mean, I think it's really only been in the last couple of years that I've gained the confidence to, you know, I think as women in general, and this is maybe a gross generalization, but I think, and maybe it's the sort of nurturing female side in this, but we tend to want to please people and we tend to want to be the ones that keep people happy. And And we tend to be called bitches and tough and all these other words if we're strong. And what I've learned is you can be really strong and really capable and competent and be vulnerable simultaneously. And so I think over the last two or three years, what I've realized is I can own my strength and my vulnerability, and it doesn't make me a tough bitch. It actually makes me a strong leader. And I think that we women and men, but people need to start being supportive of strong women and giving them the space to lead in the way that's most natural to them without feeling that they always have to keep everyone happy or they're going to be criticized for their strong leadership position, if that makes sense. That's something that I think is super important in my learning. No, thank you for sharing that. That definitely makes a lot of sense. Do you have any specific interview questions that you ask now that you've had probably a ton of employees over the years? You know, one thing I always ask people when I interview them is I want you to tell me and clearly articulate for me where you're really strong and where you're really weak and how that strength and how that weakness is going to apply to this business and what support you're going to need around you to lift you in the areas in which you're weak. And then how do we help support you and let you lean into the areas in which you're strong? I think for two reasons, I asked that question. Number one, I want to see, does the person lack self-awareness or do they actually have self-awareness? Because we all know that none of us are great at everything. And if people's answer to me is, oh, well, I'm not really good at you know, not having chocolate tomorrow. I'm like, no, no, that's not it. Like, I want someone to say, you know what? I can tend to lose my patience really easily or I'm not a detailed person or whatever. So that self-awareness is really helpful. And also it shows me, okay, they're really strong in these areas. They're, they're confidently speaking about the areas in which they believe they can excel while simultaneously telling me where they're going to need support in order to be successful. And I think that there's a lot of value in knowing that as you're putting together your teams. I couldn't agree more. And it's actually a question that I always ask in my interviews. And I'd actually like to throw that question back at you. What are your strengths and weaknesses? I would say that I am really confident in my abilities in terms of, I think I'm really good at seeing the future in terms of imagining the possibility of where things are going. I think I have a high level of emotional intelligence and a decent understanding of the consumer marketplace and what makes women tick and et cetera. Not just women, but I think we control a lot of the purchasing. So I think I can anticipate where things are going in advance of other people oftentimes. I think I'm very good on 
macro sort of business development and you know bringing people together selling them on my vision explains them why the work we're doing is important i think that i'm very good at leading authentically and owning you know for other women a space that allows them to see that i can be aspirational enough but also accessible enough and trying to deal transparently and honestly with them at all times. So I think those are my superpowers in terms of leadership, in terms of seeing the future, in terms of, you know, having a lot of good macro ideas and being that sort of front facing person in any type of thing, whether that was selling copiers back at Xerox or whether that was, you know, convincing companies that had never sold online when I had the wedding list to sell online or whether that's, you know, inspiring the 65,000 women we have selling our products that they can do this. I think I'm great at that. Where I'm not strong at all. One, I can certainly be impatient. I talk way too fast, but most importantly, I finance and like financial matters are always challenging me. It's still not like a language that I'm fluent in. I can look at spreadsheets. I can look at things, but it's not an area where I feel confident at all. And so I think that that's where I need support around me. And I also think that I can be, and I've gotten better about this. It's something I'm working on, but I can be emotional and reactive to things. And again, that's something where I've learned to take a deep breath and not, you know, point fingers or not ask questions, but that's something that I have to work on every single day. Coming up, you'll hear how Greg developed a new D2C model that is fueled by the power of their community. Greg, I want to talk about your business model because you have now over 60,000 consultants that are selling your beauty counter products. Did your business model start this way? Were you always in the consultant business or did that evolve over time? So when I started Beauty Counter, I wanted to create both a brand and a movement. And I was looking on a macro level of what was happening in the consumer marketplace, knowing that e-commerce and digital strategies were extremely important. But also knowing at the time, and again, remember I was concepting Beauty Counter back in late 2010, early 2011, that purchasing of skincare and color cosmetic products online was challenging. It was really great once someone had bought something that they loved and wanted to replenish it, but that initial purchase, which is still a challenge today, but it's gotten a lot easier. So I knew we'd have obviously an e-commerce component to our business. I knew digital was going to be the way of the future, but I also knew that traditional retail and traditional distribution of beauty products, and quite frankly, all products was waning and that department stores were over. I'd worked with department stores, I'd seen this, and this sort of department store edit of what you were gonna buy was just no longer happening. People were going peer to peer, they were looking at other people's influence, and they were using the power of storytelling. And I thought, okay, we want to create an underground movement. The incumbents control all the shelf space in retail. That model is over. We know we need to go direct to consumer, but e-commerce can't be the only platform. And so a friend of mine said, you know, have you considered using direct sales? To which I was like, no, I didn't know anything about it. And what I did know about the companies that I, my perception of certain companies was that they overpromised and underdelivered, and they weren't for me. And I think that is still true of many of these companies, not all. So what I did was I wanted to create a new direct-to-consumer you know, model that really created a community of independent sellers who are our brand advocates, create an e-commerce platform to allow people to, you know, all those orders going through our e-commerce platform, and then also marry it to best-in-class retail strategies. So our direct-to-consumer model has been that from day one. I don't think that as a brand, you can dictate to someone where, when, or how they shop. They want to shop single brands through multiple channels, when, where, and how. And so... We have our community of independent sellers who really acquire and work and personalize the experience for clients 
for whom that's the best way to shop. And then we also, people can shop on beautycounter.com. We have a couple of stores in LA and New York and Denver. And then we also have done strategic partnerships from time to time with larger retailers really to increase brand awareness and to further our mission of educating people on the need for safer ingredients. And so that ecosystem has worked really, really well for all of us. And I think it's the best of our ability meeting the needs of today's consumer. You've built an incredible business. Looking back, is there a specific moment that you were most proud of? I'd say there were one or two, but I think the first one was really early on. We hosted some of our independent sellers, part of our consultant community at a conference that we would do. We call it LEAD or Leadership Summit, where we would gather people to, you know, to physically get out there and meet people and to train them and to talk about how to better serve them. And I remember the very first one we did, which was in Nashville years ago, must have been 2014. And we were still a small company out there. And I remember, you know, I walked into the room and there were about 350 women there who had been building businesses on our platform. I mean, since then we've done ones with 5,000 women, but this was our earliest one. And I remember walking into the room and saying, oh my gosh, like all these people's lives kind of are not depending on us, but we've changed these people's lives. And I think that that has been, for me, my mission is to get safer products into the hands of everyone. My mission is to make the world safer and healthier for all. But the incredible byproduct of what we've done is that we've created economic opportunities for many tens of thousands of women. And that is a thing for sure that I am most proud of. It is so incredible what you've built. I mean, you have now this whole community of entrepreneurs. Do you have men that are selling too or just women? We do have men, but it, there are a few men behind a bunch of powerful women. No, we do have some great men. I think, you know, it's like 99% women, but we do have a few. Yeah. I mean, you are building this whole network of entrepreneurs. So anything we can do to help support them too, we're here as a resource always as well. And I just think it's really remarkable what you've been able to build. And you know, I understand your feeling of just being so proud when you walked into the room and saw all of these women where you have changed all of their lives and what an incredible accomplishment. I don't think I've changed their lives. I think they've changed their own lives, but I do think that we created a platform upon which people could educate their communities. They could use commerce as an engine for change and put you know, I also think there's something really powerful in partnership when, whether you're married or whether you're with a partner or whether they're a longstanding, you know, girlfriend or boyfriend, whatever it is, that you can turn to that person and say, hey, I've got dinner tonight. Yes, we can afford those braces. Yes, we can send our kid to summer camp, you know, or on a side gig. There's something about the balance of power when two people are contributing financially into any relationship whether you're younger or older or married or not, there is something about the power that comes with being a contributor. That to me has been just unbelievable because it totally shifts the dynamic of relationships oftentimes and gives those women the confidence to say, yeah, I've got this. And yes, we together bought this house. And yes, we together are sending our kids. I mean, it's a totally different conversation. And that's why I always want women to stay in the game working. And it's not that I don't value being a stay-at-home mother either because being a parent is the most challenging and most rewarding job of all. And to the extent that you can do something in work, and that's one of the things I love about Beauty Counter is you can do it you know, in small bits and pieces if that's how you want to do it, but it keeps you in the game, which just helps you be more confident and be able to, or just say, yeah, I, I did buy that dress. I bought the dress. I love the dress. We're not going to have the conversation because I paid for it with my own money. So end of conversation, which is another thing to have. What is your company culture like and how many employees do you have now? We have about 260 employees, maybe it's 250, maybe it's 270, I don't know, it changes, but you know, in that range, primarily based out of Santa Monica, although we have some people 
that have always been remote that work with our community of independent sellers. I think our culture has been very mission focused. I think that everyone would agree that most people that have worked for the company really feel most proud of the mission and the importance of the work that we're doing. And I think that everyone you know, that works there now feels a sense of commitment and also pride regarding the mission. I think that we also for sure have had challenging moments. I think that in the pursuit of meeting the needs of today's consumer, work is relentless. It's exhausting. I'd say right now during COVID and coming out of last year, people are tired because it's been really hard. And you know this, you know, trying to have two working parents and homeschool the kids and meet the needs of today's consumer and being in a fast growth, high paced company that is constantly trying to disrupt the status quo and constantly seeking to do more and more and more can make for a challenging company. So, company. so I think that we're, we're both, you know, so in love with our mission and such good people who love working together and probably tired. And I think, you know, we've worked really, really hard to strengthen our relationships and to give back to each other. I think everyone at Beauty Counter in general knows that we all care about each other and also knows that we have room for improvement in terms of creating all of those you know, processes and the infrastructure that is in an early stage company that's not always there to make it a little bit easier to work their day-to-day jobs. What are some of the changes that you've had to make in running your business since COVID started back in March? I think one of the things that COVID provided me the opportunity with is to really lean into our people. So I think that One thing that I've, I mean, aside from changing, so we did a bunch of things. I mean, look, we have a lot of working parents. So we created sacred hour from 1130 to 130 every day, no meetings so that people could make lunch for their families or touch base with their kids or do whatever they needed because it was just total and utter burnout in the beginning. And we also created, you know, summer Fridays all year round so that people could have some sense of space and Friday afternoons because it's just a really hard time right now. People's emotional Health is as important right now as their physical health because people are really struggling. And so I think we've really tried to work on that. I think that, you know, we really focused as a company in the beginning of COVID on like how to provide operational stability and excellence so that we would make sure that those that were relying on us on our platform were able to continue to earn and people have needed our this is now more than ever. So many people that were part-time consultants all of a sudden became full-time consultants because a spouse or a partner had lost their job or they themselves had lost their job. And so it was really challenging. And then I think at the same time, we also really tried to not pivot, but look at where are the opportunities for us to continue to lead and where is the entire marketplace going and what are consumers going to be doing on the other end of COVID. And so really putting some teams around that to think about, don't miss this opportunity to really innovate and to think about how to slightly tweak the business model to adapt to where the world's going. So I think that we've done a good job with that and obviously spending a lot of time also thinking about inclusivity and diversity and leadership and do people feel wanted and needed and supported and heard and and how is that working? And so we've spent a lot of time thinking about that as well as many companies have during the course of the last 12 months. Is there anything specific that you can share that has worked for you personally during this time or your biggest learning lesson in the last year? Well, one of the biggest learnings for me is that you don't need to physically fly all over the country and be everywhere to build intimate relationships with people. And there's no point in regretting the past because the past is in the past, right? But I think about how many airplanes I got on and how many days I spent away from my family, weeks. I mean, how many moments I miss with my children when I actually have been able to build more intimate relationships in conversations like this, looking people in the eye. And, you know, I used to fly into cities 
and 350, 500 women would show up and I would talk and wave and whatever, take some pictures and walk out. But that wasn't really having a conversation with them. That was just like going to a Greg concert. I feel like here it's like now I can actually interact with people 50 at a time, 150, 250 at a time. And we can actually ask questions in real times and have a real conversation. So I think that's been a huge learning for me. And also that you can really trust your teams that even though the people aren't physically in the office, and I used to be that way because I'm sort of old school, that actually people are really committed to doing a good job. People want to be successful. They want to please. And so wherever they are, they're going to do their work. I've also learned though that I really miss people and we miss each other. And I think that they're as great as it's been to have the flexibility of being remote for certain people I think we're all starting to feel the impact of being away from one another for such a long time. And at some point we've got to get back together because that physical, you know, what they always say, that water cooler chat or whatever it is, is like that physical interaction of walking down the hallway and giving someone a hug or giving someone shit or whatever it is. Like we miss out a lot. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Can you share with us a little bit about your marketing strategy? You have a cult following on social media. I know all of your consultants are also really active on social. What has worked really well for you over the years? And are there some marketing tactics that maybe just fell flat? Yeah, well, you would know which ones fell flat, right? Because you guys are the experts in this. And I would say we have a cult following, but we have a small following. And I've always wondered what I did wrong and why we've given the importance of the work and the reach and the many, 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 many millions of products that we've sold, why we don't have more people following. And I think at the end of the day, I was having this conversation with someone yesterday who runs a content-based company or more of a content company. And I said, you know, your company and my company should have had a baby <laughs> because you're like, we always had the commerce engine and we were really good at driving the conversation and she was incredible on the content and we're both, and I'm better at content and she's better in commerce now than she used to be, but I think it's hard to do everything. And so I think that when I think about marketing, I think I didn't harness the power of our collective voice with our independent seller community soon enough and give them the tools that they needed to really leverage the digital channels available to them. And I think we've gotten much better at that. And I think that when you have 60 plus thousand people who are singing your song, so to speak, if you give them the right assets and you ask them in unison to speak out on, you know, be bold and whatever, it's amazing the reach you can have. And so I think we're really trying to figure out now how to give people bite-sized some sort of little snippets of content and things that are more emotionally attacked. I think that's another thing. I think one of the things we did wrong is that we did not have a real emotional connection to our audience. Things would look pretty, but people would say, I think that looks beautiful, but I'm not really emotionally connecting to the brand right now. And so we've done a lot of work on that recently. What advice can you offer other budding entrepreneurs who are trying to launch their own business? I think the best piece of advice I can give them, and I, I mean, I, I have so many pieces of advice for budding entrepreneurs. I think the first thing that every single person should know is that you absolutely have it within you to be successful and that you don't need anyone else's validation. You don't need other people. You've got it. You've got what it takes to be successful. Now, with that said, success does not come easily and you need to be willing to work 24 by seven for a solid decade to have quote unquote overnight success. You have to be resilient. You have to be resourceful. You have to be you know, really, really focused on whatever your vision is. But I think that most people start with self-doubt and certainly women do. And I think that that is one of the biggest challenges that we face as women and that oftentimes entrepreneurs face is that they have these bold ideas and visions, but then they don't have the confidence to see them through. That is such great advice. Greg, I want to hear a little bit about some of your upcoming product launches. I know you have a new store that just launched. You have new innovations. Tell us all of the good stuff. 
All of the good stuff. Well, we just launched our deodorant, which is really exciting for us just Ooh. a couple of weeks ago because we've been working for five years on deodorant. We launched it in three different scent profiles and these really fun packages that are like hot pink or whatever, because I feel like deodorant always looks very boring. But also they're sustainable. So you actually just remove the cartridge and you can replenish it because we really wanted to have a package that was not only aesthetically pleasing and fun, but also was going to be a much more sustainable thing because you know people just throw out their deodorant all the time. So that's been a really exciting thing. And yesterday we just launched our jellies, which is our little lip glosses, which everyone loves. And we launched them in little duos. And I hope everyone buys them for Valentine's Day because they taste good and they remind me of lip glosses of you know decades back, but they're just fun and they're great for all ages. And I think in terms of what's coming down the pike, I think that you know we're going to continue to build on hero products looking at you know masks and other things that are really you know i think we have a very stable core business in skincare and color cosmetics but we're really looking to give people those hero products that they're really desiring right now because i think a lot of people shop beauty counter and have their core skincare regimen but they want the fun sort of almost like fashion items that are on top so we're pretty excited about some of the products that are coming on in terms of innovation i think that one of the most exciting things that we have going on right now is that we launched something called Live at Abbott Kinney in our new store in Venice, California. And we believe that there's a really interesting opportunity right now to combine content, community, and commerce and do it in a live streaming shoppable way. And so I think that with consumers looking either not going to stores as much or looking for sort of a pickup drop-off situation, but not really physically wanting to engage and just knowing that because COVID has gone on long enough that behaviors have permanently shifted, the opportunity to build intimacy, to have your community, to reach a broader audience, be able to clearly articulate your brand and shop live with your clients and have conversations with them as they're shopping and looking and, you know, hitting a little button on the screen and purchasing while interacting with the founder or the makeup artist or the brand. That to me is a really exciting innovation. That's not solely ours. It's been going on and certainly been really successful in Asia, but I think that's going to be a really important part when you think about the future of both e-commerce and retail, I think this live stream shopping is going to be really, really big. And we're just enjoying playing with that so far. I couldn't agree more. I definitely think over the next one to two years, that is going to be the future of shopping. So I love that you're on the forefront and you're getting in early. Up next, why nothing replaces hard work and what Greg is most grateful for today. All right, Greg, we do a new segment now of fun, rapid fire questions. So we're going to ask you a couple of questions. And the first answer that comes to mind, very quick. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. What has been your favorite quarantine snack? Wine. <laughs> <laughs> Who is someone you've always wanted to meet? Julia Roberts. If you could travel anywhere right now, no restrictions, where would you hop on a plane and go? Sun Valley, Idaho. What is the best thing that's happened to you this month? Stealing a week with my son because he was quarantined for being exposed to COVID. And so I flew out, he's in boarding school, and I flew out to spend eight nights with him in Massachusetts. And it was the first time he and I had been alone for that long and probably maybe ever. So it was amazing. Wow. Describe yourself in three words. You guys are killing me. Okay. <laughs> Describe myself in three words. Direct, collaborative, outgoing. What is the first thing you notice about someone you first meet? Whether or not they are curious about me and the people around them. What is the one thing that you're most afraid of? Defensively spiders. <laughs> <laughs> 
What is something you wish you could be good at? Surfing. Ah, this has been so interesting. I feel like I've learned even more about you in our quick <laughs> rapid fire questions. What is one thing that someone would be so surprised to learn about you? And this doesn't have to be rapid fire. This is a more general question now. I think people would be surprised that people that know me would assume that I'm super confident and lacking in fear all the time that I just, I've got it all going on. And I think that one of the things that I think people don't realize is that even though I present very confidently and take bold steps and actions that actually I'm often very scared and I don't have all the answers, but I still believe in what I'm doing. And so I still keep going, whether I'm scared or not, I stay the course. And I think sometimes people think that I've, you know, I've got it all ticked and tied behind the scenes and I oftentimes don't. And then that I'm a lot more, you know, nervous and vulnerable and sensitive than people realize. Were you like that as a child or did this confidence just grow over time? I've always been confident. You know, people used to describe me as really outgoing and gregarious and social. And I think I've always loved people and I've always been comfortable socially and around people. I always was in school, terrible student, but I always had a lot of fun. So I think I've always had the confidence, but I've also been insecure, scared, and sensitive, you know, my own life, you know, about certain things. Just because I have confidence doesn't mean I'm not scared half the time, if that makes sense. I hope you guys understand that because they're not always mutually exclusive. I feel the same way. I feel like, you know, I show up as very confident and outgoing, but there's a lot of times I have no idea what I'm doing or what I'm talking about, but you just got to put on a show and fake it till you make it and do the 100%. best you can do. hundred <laughs> percent. I agree. Greg, a lot of our listeners are, you know, listening to this podcast for inspiration. They're thinking about starting a business. Maybe they haven't gotten there yet. And now hearing your story and learning more about Beauty Counter, I think a lot of these women might be interested in learning how to get involved and become a consultant. What are the next steps if our listeners are looking to learn more about working with you? I think if someone is looking for an opportunity, an economic opportunity, or part, they're wanting to be part of meaningful change in an incredible community of women and men, they should give it some thought. They can certainly visit beautycounter.com. And on our site, it talks about our business opportunity and the ways in which people can build and start businesses. So they shouldn't hesitate for two seconds to go on the website and to look about it or to ask friends because I think a lot of people know someone that is a beauty counter consultant and ask them you know, what their experience has been. I think it's great because I think we've created a platform upon which people have been able to build businesses and there's no guarantee that it's going to be a success. I think that really comes down to hard work and determination, all those things. But it is an opportunity that's out there that many people have taken advantage of and really enjoyed for a variety of different reasons. And I think people join our community for, you know, different reasons. Some of them just want to join because of the mission. Some of them are beauty junkies. Some of them want to earn some additional income. Whatever the reason is, there's a platform in a community that's suited to many, many people. And we'd love to have them. Do you have a favorite mantra or quote that defines your work ethic? Not really. I mean, I think that we've said a million times, let's do this. I think lots of people say that, you know, it used to be sort of work hard and be nice to people. I think that I don't have a specific mantra, but I do believe that Nothing replaces hard work and there's no other business that you're ever going to be in other than the business of people. Have you had mentors in the industry over the years? Not within the beauty industry, no. I have had people who have informed decisions and helped me along the way. I always credit, I have a number of people on the board, Candice Kislak and Margot Fouché and some others that have been great, you know, provide great counsel and leadership, not leadership tips, but just, you know, really helped me grow and develop as a leader. And there are a lot of people that have really supported me along the way. But oftentimes it's the people with whom I work that I learn the most from. And they may be 
technically a subordinate of mine. They may be working for me, but I actually feel like I'm working for them and working side by side them. And I try to learn as much as I can from everyone around me. What are you grateful for each day? I'm grateful for a number of things. First and foremost, I am increasingly grateful for my health. I think that I understand now more than ever the importance of it through both my work and also this recent pandemic. I think that I am really thankful for the fact that I do work that I consider to be important work with people that I think are incredible. And I'm thankful that I have a roof over my head with an awesome family that I love dearly. So I would say that by most standards, I'm an incredibly fortunate person and that's not lost on me. And I think as you get older and you also have years like 2020, where you're looking at just deep desperation and challenge for so many, it reminds you of how very lucky you are just even to be in your physical home and feeling safe, which many people in this country right now are not feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Can you share any beauty tips or tricks to glam up Zoom calls? (laughs) (laughs) No, I look terrible in all the Zoom calls. I'm like the worst person to ask. I mean, look, I would say I'm not a beauty junkie. I know that seems crazy as the CEO of a beauty company, but I really, for me, it's all about the movement. Although I do absolutely love Beauty Counters products and I've learned a little bit more in terms of how to wear makeup. I think at the end of the day, if you talk to Christy Coleman, who's our chief artistic officer, and she's been one of my partners from day one, she always talks about doing your brows, whether you do it through a brow gel or a pencil, but just filling them in because it actually makes you look more awake. And you know, I know a lot of people put other things on, but for her, she would always say they will make your eyes pop. So I tend to try to put a little bit of tinted moisturizer on my face to sort of smooth out my complexion. And then I will do a little mascara and a little brow gel or a little pencil and lip because at the end of the day on Zoom, other than trying to get the better filter, we were talking about that they need Instagram filters. Like we need new Zoom filters. I'm sure they're working on them. But, totally. <laughs> um, but, but no, and I do think also just because you are technically on camera that you tend to look better with colors and without huge bold patterns. It's the same thing when you're on television or any screen where they always say, don't wear plain white, don't wear stripes, don't wear black, you know, don't wear gray because you're going to look a little bit more alive. So I tend to when I'm in an important meeting, try to wear something that has a little bit of color so that I don't look completely washed out. All right, Greg, I think you just came up with a brilliant idea. Reach out to Zoom, come up with a beauty counter, glam filter, perfect marketing opportunity. All right, let's do it. That's a great idea. Thank you. Maybe you can help me figure that out. (laughs) That would be great. That would be really good. That's probably the best idea of the year. (laughs) Write it down. You can have it. I want to know, what does a typical day look like when you're not working? Or what do you do for fun? Is there ever a day that I'm not working? <laughs> I feel as an entrepreneur, and I, and I actually, I'm sort of joking, but I'm sort of not. I think all people that are thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, if that's what they choose to do, which I highly encourage, just know that you're going to be working every single day at some point, whether that's a phone call, whether that, it's like a, having children, it's always part of your life and it's always on your mind. It's, it's very hard to divorce yourself from that. But I think on days that I'm not working, I really, I mean, again, in the non-COVID moment in time, I love spending time with my friends and we do that with our kids. And so we have a lot of fun family dinners, you know, having some, you know, cocktails, going to the beach or going hiking. I love to be outdoors. I love to enjoy the California sunshine or wherever I am. I'm very much at peace either in the mountains or at the beach. Like I love the outdoors and I love people. I love blasting tunes. And I, I don't have like a typical day now because I feel that, you know, COVID's been so crazy, but in general, I try to get some exercise, have a few good laughs, spend time with my kids and and enjoy wherever I am. And my husband, sorry, and my kids and my husband. <laughs> Let me not forget Mark. <laughs> what does being an entrepreneur mean to you? Well, I think at the end of the day, if you think about 
being a woman and being an entrepreneur, you know, and how those two things intersect. I think that we have such an incredible opportunity as women who control the purchasing power in the world. We control the consumer market. And so I think there's such an incredible opportunity to use our emotional intelligence, our buying habits, our, you know, other women to build businesses that really not only meet the needs of today's consumer, but also can help shape the world and make it a little bit better. And so I think it's combining those things. It's combining just the true grit and determination of an entrepreneur with all the wonderful things about being a woman. And I think that oftentimes I think that women in business think of the fact that they're a woman as a liability. I think they need to look at it the other way, which is an incredible asset to be a woman. And there's so much that we know and that we can bring to the table as a woman and apply that to entrepreneurial endeavors affords us such a greater opportunity. And the future of commerce is dependent on women taking more leadership positions, taking greater risks and starting businesses, leaning in in areas where they feel insecure and lack confidence. Like we've got this and we need to do more of it. And we as women need to support other women in these initiatives so that the balance of power ultimately in business is far leaning far more towards women today, way more than it is today. Because right now the balance of power is not there. It is completely controlled by men. And by the way, I'm a very pro-women woman, but I am not an anti-man. There are a lot of men that I love in my life. There are a lot of men that have helped me so much in business. So it's not that it's just, we just need a more equal balance of power. And that will take a lot of women taking risks and starting businesses. We couldn't agree more. And again, it has been such an honor to sit down with you and hear your journey and story and all of the incredible things that you've worked so hard to accomplish over the years. And thank you for sharing your insight and advice with our audience. I know I've learned so much from you in just this past hour. So thank you. Thank you so much, Greg. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always an honor to speak with other badass women who are doing great work in the world. And I think that we women need to stick together. It's our opportunity and our responsibility to support one another, to share openly our successes and failures and to cheer one another on. Absolutely. We couldn't agree more. Greg, where can everyone find you, follow you on social? And of course, if they're interested in buying Beauty Counter products, where can they shop? Well, certainly they can find us on beautycounter.com. They can look for one of our independent consultants. If they are wanting to shop in a personalized fashion with a person, they can find us in New York City on Prince Street or on Abbott Kinney in Los Angeles. And I think as far as myself, it's Greg Renfrew is my Instagram and Beauty Counter HQ is our Instagram as well. So they can look us up. We're out there and we'd love to have them be part of our movement. Wonderful. Thank you again, Greg. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. You can connect with us at socialflyny.com and follow us on Instagram at entrepreneurs. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneurspodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.